Hey, y'all. Did you know that 97% of U.S. wineries are small and 85% are classified as very small? That's why it's so hard to find your favorite wines and discover new small producers in stores. Somli wants to make it easier for wine lovers to discover, hear the story, and shop from producers of all sizes. The best part? You can bring the winery experience home with orders delivered right to your doorstep. It's easy and free to support your favorite wineries. At Somli.com, you can search for and favorite wineries, give wineries great reviews, and shop from wineries you won't find in retail. While you're there, you might discover some new ones to visit or even a new wine club to join. That's at Somli.com. Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 64. Michael Barton is the winemaker at Hilmi Cellars in Fredericksburg, and he's earning rave reviews for his wines. Today, you'll hear about his deep appreciation for Texas grape growers, the changes he's been making at Hilmi, and what he's learned working for some larger wineries. If you haven't been to Hilmi lately, you'll definitely want to check it out after hearing Michael's interview. But first, we'll cover the Texas wine news. Whether you're a regular listener or joining for the first time, welcome to This is Texas Wine. Seven years ago, the headline read, Southhold Farm and Cellar for Sale as Winery Plans Move to Texas. Now the news is that the Metter family, proprietors at Southhold Farm and Cellar, is moving to France. The announcement said in part, We are so damn proud of what we have achieved in our time here in Texas. Moving a winery across the country is not something done every day, and success was certainly not guaranteed. We came to Stonewall with a vague idea of the trials and travails of growing wine in the state, but through partnerships and friendships, we were able to achieve things beyond our expectations. Seeing our wine served at some of our favorite restaurants around the world, being one of two Texas wineries ever poured in the White House, seeing pictures from all of you enjoying something that we worked so hard to produce has been the thrill of a lifetime. The Post goes on to say, I'm sure you're probably wondering if all that's the case and coming off two of their most successful vintages, why on earth would they want to end it? Well, it seems that the family has found themselves in a unique position to chase after a dream to make wine in Bordeaux. They're going to take over another family's wine estate and they're excited about getting to work with some varieties that they love like Cabernet Franc and to also practice biodynamics in a cooler environment. They say it's a dream come true. For now, Southhold Farm and Cellar will be open Fridays through Sunday from 12 to 4, and you do not need reservations. Regan says they're not sure yet when they'll be packing up. I also asked for more details about the Southhold wine poured at the White House. He said, don't forget to soar was included in the governor's ball dinner in 2020. The wine steward from the White House tracked them down, and secretly brought in the wines. It was a complete surprise to the folks at Southhold, and they didn't find out about it until after it happened. Southhold and the Meter family will certainly be missed in the Texas wine industry. But now we all have an excuse to go to Bordeaux. 
Writing for 750 Daily, author Amy Beth Wright just penned an article called Grape Crush Reports Are Essential for U.S. Wine Industry Growth. Here's why. And it's subtitled, In Established and Emerging Regions Alike, Grape Crush Reports Demonstrate the Economic Impact to Legislators While Supporting Data-Based Decision-Making for Long-Term Growth. The article opened sharing a time when Chris Brundrett used data from Crush Reports to help inform the debate behind the 100% Texas labeling law that passed in late 2021. Chris, of course, is the Chris and William Chris Wine Company and is also a board member for Wine America, a nationwide wine industry advocacy group. The article details the shortcomings of the National Agricultural Statistics Service, or NASS, Their reports have been pared down and often only reflect tonnage statistics. States are taking various approaches to gather that data, and Wine America encouraged Chris Brundrett and other industry leaders to rally state representatives to support surveys at the federal level and to pursue in-state grape reporting if it didn't already exist. Wine America is spearheading an effort to restore funding for the NASS vineyard surveys in the 2024 Farm Bill. Meanwhile, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension went into action collecting vineyard survey and crush reports from winemakers and grape growers in the hopes of getting more accurate numbers. The article says that it's important not just that the reports cover what's planted in the ground, but they can also have transformational impact on the economic growth of a wine region, whether it's emerging or established. Justin Shiner from Texas A&M AgriLife is also quoted. On the last episode, I mentioned the common refrain that cotton is king in Texas. A Lubbock radio station reported that if cotton is king, then wine is queen. And speaking of data, I thought I'd pull a little to compare the two industries. I just learned that the total economic impact of cotton in Texas is estimated to be as high as $24 billion annually. For Texas wine, that figure is $20.3 billion, according to Wine America data. When it comes to acres planted, there are 6.2 million acres of cotton planted in Texas, and that number has been shrinking, according to the Texas Farm Bureau. Grapevines have a far smaller footprint with about 9,000 acres planted, according to the latest study from Texas A&M AgriLife, and that number is growing. When it comes to water usage, AgriLife says that grapes return more dollars to growers per gallon of irrigation water than any other major crop in Texas. One example I found said that grapes require two acre feet of irrigation water a year, while cotton requires three acre-feet and alfalfa up to six acre-feet. The second annual Texas Wine Auction raised a total of just over $245,000, nearly double what was raised last year. It was a really fun evening, and a big cheer went up when Dr. Justin Shiner, Associate Professor and Extension Specialist, in Texas A&M University's Department of Horticultural Sciences, was awarded the 2023 Pat Brennan Excellence in Texas Wine Award for his contributions to Texas viticulture and enology. That's such a well-deserved honor. Guests also got to taste Brennan Vineyard's JPB Tribute, a proprietary red blend in honor of Brennan Vineyard's founder, the late Dr. Pat Brennan. The wine was made in his favorite style, luxurious, bold, and fruit-driven. 
It's a blend of Nero d'Avola, Carmenere, Graciano, and Cabernet Franc. The striking label includes Dr. Brennan's own handwriting taken from his winemaking notes. The wine was created to help the Texas wine industry grow through that partnership with Texas Wine Auction. A portion of the proceeds will help fund and operate a mobile medical clinic for the Texas Hill Country hospitality community, as well as continuing education for viticulture and enology research with Texas A&M AgriLife. JPB Tribute is now available on the Brennan website and in the tasting room. It's $95 and absolutely delicious. International Wine Review recently published a profile on C.L. Buteau, Randy and Brooke Hester's wine label that you've heard me mention before, and perhaps you heard Randy on the podcast quite a while back. The article gives some background information about Randy and then shares notes and scores on four C.L. Buteau current releases. They say, the four wines we tasted are fresh and youthful. We've been tasting a lot of Rioja wines recently, so we were intrigued by a couple of Randy's Reds made with Tempranillo. The 2020 C.L. Buteau Tempranillo is especially well-made and shows good varietal character. They say it's dark red. It's the best of the Buteau wines we tasted, showing good concentration, a full mouthfeel, and importantly, good varietal character. It has aromas and flavors of dark cherry with hints of tobacco and loamy earth, finishing clean and fairly long. An excellent wine to pair with grilled meats, sourced from farmhouse vineyards. I hope you're all planning to do some continuing education on May 23rd. There are two notable events happening on that date. The first is Sage's Vintage Symposium in Nacogdoches. I'm excited to be making my first trip there. Attendees will hear from Ron Yates of Spicewood Vineyards and Ron Yates Wines, Amy Hendrickson of Texom, Valerie Elkins, from William Chris Wine Company, Daniel Pate of Apical, Texas, and January Weesey of the Hill Country Wineries Association. Of course, past podcast guest Michael McClendon and Wes Jensen are partners in Sage's Vintage Custom Crush, and this is their sixth annual symposium. You can find out more at sagesvintage.com. Also on May 23rd, the sixth annual Central Texas Vines and Wines Program which is organized and hosted by the Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Services, will be held at Valley Mills Vineyards. The Bagnasco family of Valley Mills Vineyards is hosting, and they'll be sharing some of their experiences firsthand. Speakers include Joey and John Bagnasco, Fran Pontash, Michael Cook, Dr. Justin Shiner from AgriLife, and also Charlie Walter, winemaker at Valley Mills Vineyards. Reservations are due May 19th, so act fast. Find the link to all these stories in the show notes at thisistexaswine.com. And that's the Texas Wine News. If you've got a minute and would like to help me grow the podcast, I sure would appreciate it if you would share the podcast with others. You can do that on social media by tagging at Texas Wine Pod in your stories and posts. You can also review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and even on my own website, which is thisistexaswine.com. I just had a new five-star review come in. It says, Most Informative Texas Wine Podcast. I've listened to every episode. First review. Easily the most informative information source about Texas wine. Shelley has grown as a podcaster and, most importantly, as an interviewer. 
The most recent episode, number 63, captures the heart of Texas wine and Phil Lopez, but it displays Shelley's skills as she asks specific questions about the realities of growing wine in Texas. I look forward to every episode for the news segments as she always finds items I've missed about the growing Texas wine industry. This is a must listen for those who want to learn about the growing, booming Texas wine scene. You won't be disappointed. Thank you. And finally, you can visit my website to sign up for my occasional newsletter. That's where I'll communicate with you and share more information about my recent wine events and fun finds and wine and travel. Thanks, y'all. And now for our interview. You may have heard about the exciting things going on at Hilmi Cellars in Fredericksburg. Hilmi's winemaker Michael Barton has been making great wines, earning accolades, and updating some things in the winery since he arrived there in 2019. You're about to hear more about Michael's background, his approach to winemaking, and how much he values his relationships with the grape growers that provide Hilmi's fruit. I'm so pleased that this week's Women for Wine Sense National Meeting has chosen Hilmi as one of its three winery visits because Hilmi's wines are that impressive. Here's my conversation with Michael Barton of Hilmi Cellars. So we're sitting here on a rainy day overlooking your vineyard. Can you tell me what's going on out there? Yeah, so uh, basically that's uh, the older vineyard. So that's the first one that was actually installed here at Hilmi. Um, so the family put that one in. It originally was San Giovese. Um, now we're actually transitioning into Darif, uh, which is Petite Syrah. Uh, we've been uh, actually having a lot more success with the French clones, so we've been kind of changing it up. We tried uh, some California clones of Tempranillo and Cabernet Sauvignon in the front, but after that winter vortex storm, probably going to have to readdress that front vineyard. Um, but the Darif seems to be doing pretty well, and we just brought on Atlas Management Company for vineyard uh, so we're actually looking forward to get that transition because right now I'm a little bit spread thin on all the duties that we have going on right now. And how many acres are on this property? Uh, so we have seven and a half trellised. Um, and the middle vineyard that we're really going to focus on first is going to be three and a half of that. Okay. I want to talk about how your wine story originated. And I know a lot of it started in Lubbock. So, or maybe you started loving wine before that. So where did wine become interesting for you? I guess if we go fully back, um, I was more on a pre-med kind of route. Uh, my grandfather, uh, he was in the Air Force and he helped with a lot with NASA, some of that first actual experimentals with getting humans up into space. So that was kind of his MD. He was also a flight surgeon for the Air Force. Uh, served in like Vietnam, uh, actually as a Marine in World War II. And so he's a big inspiration. So I wanted to follow those suits. So I took Latin in like middle school and high school. I ended up with like almost, I guess, seven years of it. So with Latin, you get all this culture as well as the language. And that the reason we took Latin was, you know, the MCAT, all the actual diagnosis is in Latin. But with that, you really kind of get involved. And with Rome comes wine. So... You know, I was always interested in Roman history, especially the military expansions. And what those Romans did is they brought vineyards with them everywhere they went. And they would adopt, you know, their culture, you know, to actually come, you know, from the Greeks all the way from the Caucasus Mountains. And so when I was in Texas Tech, then I was doing well, you know, for the pre-med route. Well, when I saw viticulture and enology in the course catalog, especially with that Latin background, I was like, oh my gosh, it's grape growing and winemaking. Um, so it didn't take me long to decide to switch to that. So I always wanted to be a scientist. I always wanted to have that 
kind of aspect where I can enjoy my time in the lab. I've always been a hands-on person. So it's kind of that perfect blend where I wouldn't have to be at a desk all day, even though uh, the longer you stay in the business, sometimes you find yourself at a desk. It's true. <laughs> but uh, true. no. And so basically from there, I changed my major. Um, I interned originally at Yano Estacado Winery. They made me start in the front of house before they let me go in the back. They're like, no, you have to go through the whole process. So I went there, um, ended up spending a rather long time, over five years with Yano as, as finishing up my degree, you know, with that change of one biology to plant biology. Basically, none of my courses mattered anymore. So basically a clean slate. Got through that, uh, really enjoyed my time. Got to learn under uh, Greg Bruni, Jason Santani, and Chris Hole while he was there. So it was nice to have like three different winemakers see their three different stylistic standpoints. Who's the third one you mentioned? Chris Hole. Um, he was there. Uh, he was only there for about a year for myself. Okay. Is uh, he still in the Texas industry? He's still in the Texas industry. He's just a little bit quieter, but a phenomenal winemaker too. Okay. So you look him up when you get the chance. I will. I will. And then, um, so after the uh, Yano, I spent some time in Colorado at a, a place called Continental Divide Winery. I actually also did a little bit of political activity there. Um, so I was involved in CAVE, the Colorado Association of Viticulture Enologists. So I was involved with uh, basically passing legislation for wine. So um, they didn't have laws where like you could recork a bottle and take it home or anything like that. So we passed that bill was like the first one I worked on. It was really most heavily involved. And then I worked on a lot of other small minor ones, like walking with a glass of wine or, you know, working with the brewers associations up there to pass some other, you know, common sense alcohol laws uh, because they were behind on that. So that was kind of a fun other side activity besides making wine, you know, at the small winery. I was only doing 50 tons. Um, then I came back to Texas. I worked at Horn Winery for about two years, kind of helping a lot with the custom crush programs there. Um, then started consulting around the same time. So I had about five different brands I've been working with. And then in 2019, luckily right before COVID and everything, I went ahead and accepted the job here at Helmi Cellars. And what's the story on Helmi? Tell me a little bit about the history at Helmi. Yeah, so uh, Helmi was founded in 2012 by Eric Helmi. Um, and so with the help of the family, like Dr. Sharif Helmi and Marianne Helmi and his brother Mark, uh, they really kind of built the whole facility as well as this back vineyard that you look at from the patio. Um, they had a lot of good winemakers that came in through here, like um, Brad basically over at Lostra. He went through here as well, uh, did some phenomenal wines up in 15. Um, they really had a really solid reputation uh, going up and actually starting to grow and doing everything. They worked really uh, close with uh, Brent Hogue up at Blackwater Draw Vineyards, and we continue that re- you know relationship to this day. So that's from the very get-go. So we get more Ved from him, Merlot, Cabernet Franc, Orange Muscat, and Albarino. Um, so that's always been really kind of a constant start with us as well. Uh, and obviously you can kind of see what it is now today. So it's been kind of a fun expansion. Only now are we expanding to having more patio space, more seating, um, kind of get more of the flow of traffic, hopefully, that will continue to come through. Yeah. I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about the production space that we just walked through. You're making some changes from the way things were when you arrived. So can you tell me a little bit about, you said, uh, modernizing and changing things around and um, some capital expenditures, sounds like. Absolutely. So um, we had a smaller press. It was about a three and a half ton or three ton press, uh, depending if the fruit was full cluster or crushed. So what we wanted to do was kind of expand on that. So now we have a closer to eight ton press. So instead of running a press multiple times, um, because modern presses now can press very softly and we have a lot more control with that. So everything is customizable with a modern press. So we went ahead and modernized to a larger one so that there's less press runs going through. Our lot sizes can be larger 
and there's a little bit less physical and manual labor that's going into this. Um, that being said, we're also modernizing a lot of the glycol units and how we're actually transferring that energy through because there's always a cost to everything. And so what we're trying to do is kind of lower those costs a little bit by getting the right piece of equipment to run those things. Um, we also used to have a much larger tanks for just larger lots, but since we're also doing smaller lots for like wine club release or, you know, we're doing experimental lots and see if we actually like those, uh, what those great varietals are doing, or we buy multiple of the same grape varietal from different growers. We're seeing which region we kind of like it the best. Uh, so we've actually modernized by having some smaller 1,000-gallon tanks, 500-gallon tanks, you know, 2,000-gallon tanks to kind of match the flow of basically all of our programs. Mm-hmm. We're very limited on space, and so we're trying to capitalize as much space um, because our cellar is basically right attached to our barrel hall, and we, co- uh, we keep about 600 barrels in there. So it's, a, it's always kind of a moving machine. Uh, but it's really nice because uh, we have a lot of smaller lots and a lot of larger lots now. That gives us a little bit more flexibility each year, you know, to hit the main programs like our politics from religion, mm-hmm. our juju, um, our du Oiseau, our Teos Blanc. But at the same time, we can add some new stuff coming out as well. Keep it fresh every year. So as your estate vineyard has uh, changed, you've changed over some varieties that were initially planted here. Tell me about your approach with your blending versus uh, single varietal bottlings. Perfect. That's a good question. Uh, So single varietals, we always pick. I try to do a single vineyard as well, um, only because I think like a Cab Sauv can taste very different vineyard by vineyard. Same with the Tempranillo. Uh, When it comes to blending, though, we're going to showcase more of the region. Uh, and we also try to keep like French varietals with French, Spanish with Spanish, Italian with Italian. We're not trying to cross blend too much, uh, too often. Um, and that's just kind of out of spirit of where these varietals come from. Um, I always feel like, you know, that's where their home is. So they kind of like stick with their friends. Um, but also, you know, when we blend, we try to go for the best wine possible. When you're doing a single varietal, you're showcasing that area and that specific vineyard. And that's kind of something that we like to do. Um, Now, there will be instances that we blend a single vineyard together, and that's usually on years that are very light in production. Um, So we can still showcase our grower, and we can still have that partnership. Um, But, you know, we know that there uh, there has to be a certain amount of those wines bottled. Otherwise, you know, only so many people will get that bottle. And uh, I feel that's a little bit unfair sometimes. Yeah. You know, first come, first serve. We're, we are a medium-sized winery, um, so I think we can hit those numbers and at least get that to the populace. And we don't really hold back any wine just for Wine Club. We do it for uh, several months. But after that, we kind of open that opportunity for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, Wine Club gets a, the discount, of course, and they get first dibs. And those do we do make those small 100-case lots on very special occasions, and they will get those. Um, but these other mentalities is, is still a partnership with our grower. We want to show off our growers. And you're working with a number of growers in the High Plains. I think I read that about 85% of your fruit actually comes from the High Plains. Correct. We used to have some hill country fruit. We're trying to get back onto that one. Um, but right now, it's, um, right now, there's a fluctuating price going on with the hill country. And, um, you know, we're, we'd be newer coming into a partnership with the hill country vineyard uh, until we can get kind of ours going on right now. So... Our priorities have been with the High Plains as of right now. We try not to do California every year. Uh, I know the Juju line is popular, so we do it uh, every two to three years. 
And tell me what that is. So our juju is our California Cabernet Sauvignon blend. Okay, so it's labeled California. Yeah, so actually we label it American because okay. it's not produced in California. We produce it here, so we'll just call it American. And I actually do blend some Texas back into it sometimes to improve it. To improve it. it. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> there yeah, you go. That Alicante Boucher, you know, just a little oh, dash. Yeah. yeah, nice. I know that ideally your fruit comes in and it's just perfect and you don't have to do a lot of manipulation and every winemaker says they just want to keep it simple, make a balanced wine. But I think before I had ever even met you, I had heard that you have a reputation as being somebody who can fix wine that's gone bad. Yes. Tell me about that. Yeah. Not the reputation I really wanted, but the one I got. Um, So there's a lot of things you can do with, you know, wines that are, you know, less than stellar, I think is the best way to put it. And so either that can be blending mentalities or, you know, there's some, I don't want to say manipulation, but there's some additions you can do. And these come from a lot of trials. You know, sometimes if they don't have structure, you can come back with some products that emulate what happens with leaves. Um, there's other ones that will round out the palate. Sometimes you have to pull out some tannin. But really, at the end of the day, you're just going to have to address that wine, find what the issue is. And there's usually several things that you can do to counter those issues. You know, if it's oxidation, um, if it's VA, obviously there's some ways that you can go through. But the best way is to kind of, isolate and get rid of that wine unless it's too far gone you know if it's too far gone if it's not far gone enough you can do some blending and all that but you still want to bottle a good product that can be enjoyable and those ones we also emulate you know those less than stellar wines should have a lower price point you know i'm not going to expect you to pay 50 dollars for something that's not turning really well so yeah so uh luckily i learned a lot of that um just from experience with larger wineries and not necessarily you know from them having issues but when you accept every bit of fruit that comes in and you can kind of experiment, you know, with those that would be smaller lots there compared to larger lots here. You can kind of actually see some of the tricks of the trade to get those done. Um, and yeah, that happens. You don't always get the most optimal fruit and you need to know how to approach it to make sure that you can make the best product possible. And I know sometimes it could be potentially out of the grower's hands how the fruit actually arrives here because we're a number of hours away here in the hill country from I'm glad you bring that up too, actually. It, it's... I feel like it's a winemaker's responsibility with your partner, the vineyard. Everybody needs to make sure that, you know, we can feed our families. We can actually do everything together. So I I really don't have a policy. I really very rarely turn fruit away. We'll find something to do with it and we'll pay the grower. Because at at the end of the day, it's a long-term relationship. And there's going to be good years and bad years. I know right now we're focusing on bad fruit. um, But I will say, you know, we work with some high-end growers where we get hand-picked stuff. And I think the biggest issue we have with high-end growers is sometimes is the yields, which is not the worst issue. Because, you know, sometimes smaller yield, beautiful product. It doesn't matter. It's beautiful product. Uh, and then with larger growers, you know, this is not always the case, obviously. This is all conjecture. But you can get some of that less in quality fruit. But there there should always be a way. You know, that's why we buy a good amount of Tanat, Alicante Boucher, some Petite Syrah, something that's darker, more rich, has some more fruit. Because you can always blend in there. There's nothing wrong with blending. There's nothing wrong with building that blend. And if you just make a kind of standard red wine or a standard white wine that any consumer can enjoy for a certain price point, perfect. That's the best avenue. And then your high-end stuff, that's when the true kind of artistry and winemaking kind of comes in. You kind of go back, you know, and you just get to, like, watch something beautiful evolve. That's always the fun part. You know, so many regions of the world, world-class wine regions, make blended wines. But when I started drinking wine, I started drinking primarily California wines. And I thought, well, single varietal, single vineyard wines is the end-all, be-all. That's like the ultimate 
purpose of a wine. But in fact, when you look at different places around the world, their best expression of that region, like Bordeaux, is usually a blended wine. So it's interesting how many Texas wines blends have been awarded and are lauded, and and maybe that is the highest expression of a Texas wine. I don't know. Well, it could be multiple things, because if you think of like Bordeaux and you think of these areas that do blend, um, so like uh, the Super Tuscan blends in Italy is because they had Capsov, they wanted a bigger, bolder wine, and they went ahead and approached it that way. And of course, they couldn't do like the Reserva or anything stylistically over there because it was a French grape. But Bordeaux is because these are the grapes they're finding and that they could finally genetically find out what they were growing. So they knew there were some different varietals. They didn't know what they were. But, I mean, we're talking back from the age of Napoleon. He goes out to this chateau and says, yep, this is the best one. And that's one that's going to be this price point. That might have been about some taxes and war and all that. But that's besides the (laughs) point. Long story. Long story. But, you know, they found out the best way to make their wines in the regions over centuries. And they found out that those varietals going together would be you know, what they thought. But sometimes they thought that was, you know, this, and they found out later on it was a different varietal. Mm-hmm. So they evolved, you know, just by taste. In Texas, I think we have, you know, and also California, now we know what it tastes like and everything like that. We can focus on the best wine possible. And the best part is there's so many different winemakers, you can get so many different styles. So as a consumer standpoint, I think it'd be a lot more fun to go around. For sure. And then uh, I also try not to drink all my own stuff. you got to go out. So Yeah. You mentioned price, and tell me a little bit about your approach to pricing. I know a lot goes into it, and I've read that you try to keep pricing uh, somewhat accessible. I try to do it moderate. So what we do is we have, like, our moderate programs, and um, especially with how, you know, the modern day is right now, you know, everybody's kind of penny-pinching a little bit. So we're trying to hit lower price point, you know, and our lower price point still is, like, in that $30, $35 range, but on 290, prices are kind of going higher, and I mean, that's a... That's really the state of the economy right now. Uh, you're going to see, you know, with inflation, um, you know, we're looking at some different kind of taxes out here. You know, you're going to see price increase, but that's also because it's harder on the growers in Texas. So you're seeing price increases on fruit as well. Um, so we're doing our best to approach it, you know, with more of a logical and reasonable mindset. Kind of hit those price points where we can still not have the consumer shy away. Um, and then the high-end wines, though, those will probably be going up because the price of that whole process is going up. Um, but, you know, at the same time, if you're comparing a high-end wine to something in California and you do a blind tasting, I mean, you can take any of, you know, even my competitors here on 290 and do those brown bag, some of their primo stuff, and compare it to a brown bag $200, $300 bottle, you're probably going to prefer one of our Texas boys or gals. So, you know, don't shy away from it too much. But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to make a wine for everybody to come in. And I don't want to push people out. You know, we still have a sweet wine program. We still have the dry whites. We have the off-dry. Um, we're trying to make sure that whoever comes in can actually have something they can enjoy and also something they can afford. Mm-hmm. Smart. I'm interested to know that you were involved in the legislative efforts in Colorado because I've there's a lot, obviously, we're in a legislative session right now in Texas, and there's a lot that's been talked about about you know, why aren't people who are doing actual viticulture under some kind of a different permit than people who just maybe have a tasting room down the road that aren't working in Texas wine at all, but they're bringing in wine from somewhere else? Do you think you'll get involved in the legislative side of things in Texas? Uh, maybe when I can actually catch my breath. Uh, <laughs> You've got a lot going on. I've got a lot going on. We have a, right now my wife and I, we have a month old child. So that's going on. I'm building a house on our property right now. And then uh, I'm putting a little test plot vineyard on my own property as well. 
So maybe maybe if I can catch up and actually breathe, but you know, maybe maybe down the road. One of these days. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it, um, but it was involved, and you have to be involved, and you have to be on top of it. Otherwise, they kind of forget about you. Let's be real. They're politicians. They get a lot on their plates. Sure. Um, but yeah, there, I know there's a lot going on with Texas legislation. Um, the one thing that we had in Colorado that was easier to work with was we were pretty united. But then again, you have to think how many winemakers and wineries are in Colorado. It's a fraction. And, uh, you know, so out here, getting everybody on the same page sometimes is difficult. But then you find there's things that we're all uniformly, you know, on board. So I don't know if I want to play the politics game quite yet. You know, <laughs> maybe in good time. Yeah, for sure. I know one of the other things that you spend your time doing is kind of mentoring and helping people get into winemaking. And I've heard your name come up several times, people that are either new to the state or just starting out or almost kind of like home winemakers, but they're getting professional opinions from you and professional um, expertise from you. Is that something that you're um, particularly passionate about? Uh, I'm just an open book. Uh, I'll give you an honest answer. Um, And honestly, you know, I enjoy this. This is a fun topic. I mean, you're not into winemaking if you don't love it. And honestly, it's just, uh, you know, I'm fine with all the questions because you got to learn from somewhere. And, you know, I I was pretty blessed to have some great mentors. And so I'm I'm always trying to help as much as I can, you know. And you know what? As a winemaker, you'll never face every single problem. And even there's some questions I have and I can ask them my peers and, you know, you know, I've called Ben Kalev with a question about rosé not too long ago. And, and, you know, I called Mike Baytech about a different product that I've never used. So it's nice to be able to still have your friends and peer group here. But also when somebody's trying to come in, uh, and again, that came with some consulting. I think I got paid for talking more people out of this industry than in it. <laughs> but <laughs> it's a hard life, but it's a fun life. Um, but no, if somebody's interested and they have that spark and they have that passion, I'll absolutely help out. I'd like to go into a little more uh, detail on this wine that we're sipping today, which is your sparkling wine. Tell me about um, the wine, and is this your first array into sparkling? This is, actually. And um, I'd say it's a a forced carb. So, again, we were trying to hit something different. So we actually bottled this at Texas Custom Wine Works. So we made the whole base product. So we get a decent amount of orange muscat, and that's typically because we make wine for some other brands that have to have that sweeter wine, and then we have our orange muscat that we release, like, every two years. Um, so I always try to find some fun avenues for it. So this is primarily Semillon, though. Um, I love Semillon. Um, this actually came from Canted County Vineyard, so I was kind of working with them when they were first planting that, and I get basically all those blocks. Um, I think I'll be sharing a little bit of it this year. I, I know um, some other wineries were looking at it. But we wanted to go ahead and have a sparkling. We know it was a big trend. I know I really wanted to get into it. I know we didn't have the avenue or the capital to go ahead and go straight into, you know, Method uh, Method Champenois. So what we did is we tried to do something simple, approachable, and again, I don't care if you mix it with OJ, but I think it's really kind of a fun (laughs) product. Uh, So we went ahead, I think it's about 80% Semillon, 20% Orange Muscat. Uh, We Actually, the Orange Muscat, we ferment dry, um, and then it comes back, so it actually gives it a nice acid structure. And then, uh, of course, aromatically, it's Orange Muscat. It's always going to be pretty demanding. The Semillon, though, had a lot of structure and nice... um, Nice structure, didn't have the brightest acidity, so that's kind of why we had actually compared them. And honestly, it was kind of a shot in the dark. We did about one and a half, two percent residual sugar uh, just for body, because uh, the sparkling sometimes can come off really thin. 
And then uh, we force carved it and put it in, and now it's a really easy drinking sparkling. And uh, uh, it's been really enjoyed by a lot of our consumers. I think we'll go a little bit drier next year um, because this is my first shot in the dark, and um, I really like what it is, but, you know, you always work on improvement. And uh, so kind of excited for the next batch. Yeah, if you just had one recipe, that'd be a boring life. So exactly. You try something new every year. And then I always piss somebody off, though, who loved it too much, and then... Uh, <laughs> bring it back a little bit. But. Another wine that I want to talk about is uh, one I tasted at the Texas Hill Country Wine Symposium, and there was a seminar on Carignan, and we tasted, Joanna over at Petronalis um, did a blind tasting experience for us, and yours was one in the lineup, mm-hmm. and it was lovely. And then I, I understand there was a big gathering just recently where a lot of wine people got together and did kind of a final four thing, and and your wine once again rose to the top as a favorite. So tell me about Carignan as a variety and then about that wine in particular. Absolutely. Uh, that was probably only the third Carignan I've worked on. Um, but I'll give a mad shout out. That was actually from La Pradera Vineyards. Um, really nice fruit. Uh, it's probably the darkest Carignan I've ever made too. Um, stylistically, we kind of approach it a little bit differently than I normally do. Um, so Carignan can have a little bit of spice. This one had a lot of fruit on the early ages. Um, so I wanted to kind of capture that. Um, so we went ahead and fermented in one-ton bins. Uh, we only got about four tons of it. And then, uh, so it was a little bit hotter ferment, so we got a little bit more color and tannin extraction with that. Um, tried to off-gas as much as we can to kind of cool it down, but with those one-tons, they're going to burn a little bit fast. Um, came out really nice and fruit-forward at the press. Uh, we went ahead and kept the pressed portion, the heavy press, with the full, so it still has the structure. And that was planned because we weren't going to put uh, any new oak on it. So it was 100% neutral oak, just to go ahead and get a little bit more of the fruit-forward nature. And then uh, we bottled it within like eight months. Um, so that was another experiment we've been doing to see if we can bottle fast and then bottle age a little bit and then release. And we're pretty happy with the results on this varietal. Um, we're going to experiment with some other ones. We know with Bordeaux, we have to sit a lot longer. Uh, but even Tempranillo, we're kind of playing with that. You know, certain these varietals have higher pHs and sometimes will age a little bit faster. So, you know, obviously we're going to adjust with the acid and bring them down. But we're experimenting with some of these faster bottlings and then some of these longer bottlings. So it, it's kind of a balancing act. And, and explain to me again why the shorter bottling would be important other than just to get it out to market faster. Well, I mean, it's not actually, it wasn't even focused to get out to market faster. We're kind of trapping some of those younger wine characteristics. Um, the wine is aging a little bit faster. It does make the wine necessarily a little bit cheaper, um, but we're looking at capturing a lot more of the fruit, okay. maintaining a lot of this color on these varietals that we're not throwing a lot at. Um, so we're not throwing a lot of tannin at, we're not, um, so, you know, color molecules come in. So, like, a little happy color molecule and tannin and oxygen combine. Uh, so, you're throwing a little bit more tannin at it, um, at actual press. Um, that can be in the form of oak chips or actual powdered. Uh, so, now I'm going science here. I'm sorry. That's but, um, so, I'm trying to find some different avenues from some different varietals to bottle a little bit faster. And some of that actually had to do with the fact that we're running out of wine pretty fast. So, when I took over in 19, we didn't have as much wine in the back um, because I kind of went through all of those guys, only picked the ones that we wanted to go through, and then 20 was such a light harvest. 21 was a little bit better, and then 22 we actually have kind of caught up, so we're back to being like 200 tons. Um, but when I got here, I think they were only doing about 50, 60, um, up to 100, depending on the year. 
So and I, how does 200 tons um, turn into cases? Uh, so I think like over 400 barrels. Uh, let me do some math for you. It's basically a 10,000 case facility because okay. we also make some wine for some other programs. That, gotcha. So some of that disappears. Um, so we try to keep it, the winery itself, we produce between ten to 15,000 cases a year. And of that, um, about 8 to 10 is our own. Okay. And some of that go into distribution? Uh, no distribution, just direct to consumer. Okay, so you're seeing a lot of people through this tasting room or doing a huge uh, online business. Both. Yeah, but we're on, a, we're on a state of growth. So if you think that's what we just did this last year, that's going to come into play for the next two years. So when I first come here, we're about a five to six. Um, and then we've been slowly kind of releasing those. Um, whites have been flying off the shelves pretty fast, though, I will say. Um, and that's because I think kind of our truer reds, like the Carignan was a true style that you know we approached it with. But a lot of the 20s, we didn't have a lot of the equipment kind of working to the full optimization that we wanted. Um, so 21, we really started corralling it in a little bit better. Mm -hmm. 22, though, I'm really excited about um, the vintages coming out. We got a lot more darker stuff, a lot more fruit-forward stuff. Um, some stuff that we're going to do some fun blends. Like we were uh, in 21, we're going to have a uh, Cab Franc, Merlot, Cab Sauv, Petit Verdot, and a little bit of Petit Syrah blend coming out and then a really nice cap sob from a VSART vineyards that we're bottling in May. So I, I'm really excited about the new wines coming out. And you're really putting a team together here that is um, supporting all this growth and all these exciting things. Yeah, We're doing a great job, especially with the people we have. Um, so our assistant winemaker is um, Haley Rob. Um, so Robbe, she's going to kill me for that one. Cause how do you spell her last name? R-A-B-E. It's very German. Okay. Um, she's Got been it. a phenomenal asset uh, to the team. She's basically running most of the cellar operations um, and then also running a lot of our labs. Uh, and then we also, we just hired Sarah, who's in our back house. So she's a brand new Texas Tech grad. Um, so we've been supporting a lot of the, uh, you know, graduates that have been coming out. And, and the people we hire are very passionate people. And that's kind of the mainstay. And, you know, uh, I take my time with the hiring process. And then uh, we have uh, Bill, who's out in the our head of maintenance and groundskeeping. And then we have myself, and that's kind of the whole operation. So Yeah. Is Casey still here? Casey's still here, yeah. He's, on the C he's our COO, and he's the man who basically runs the whole place. So. Excellent. Takes the teamwork. Absolutely. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you're particularly passionate about or want to make sure and mention about Helmy or your projects or whatever else you've got going on, your philosophy? Philosophy. I don't know. I, well, uh, the main philosophy is the best grapes make the best wine. And so the big thing is we've been doing a lot of turn to change to work with some premium growers. And that's necessarily, I think, what's led to the most success. If you get good fruit, you can trust your growers. You can get it here on a good, decent time, and you know what you're doing. You're going to do a really good job. Um, but it, you also got to take in a lot of other stuff. You know, you got to make sure your equipment's correct. You got to make sure your people are doing the right thing. Uh, you got to make sure you're doing the right thing. Um, so it's fun. It's a teamwork job. We all work together. Everyone's a part of that wine. Uh, so there's never just one person. Mm -hmm. And uh, honestly, you know, all glory to the growers. They're the only ones who make this possible. Were there things in place to support that industry in Colorado that we don't have in Texas? In Colorado is a very different environment. So they're very self-supportive to each other. Um, but you have to think the is a completely different show. All the grapes are basically coming from the Palisades. So these are peach farmers and grape growers. But it was such a small industry 
everything was hand-picked. Everything was hand-pruned. Everything was hand-done. They had no real mechanization. They're starting to now, but when I was there, literally everything was by picking crew. And uh, actually, the coolest thing is I'd go down there, they'd pick the Cab Franc or, you know, Convert Chamin or whatever varietal it was, and then we'd drive it on a trailer all the way back up the mountains because I was making this out in about 10,000 feet up in the mountains. So it was a really cool environment. Uh, but by the time the fruit arrived to me, all hand-picked, it was like 52 degrees because you got to think the mountain temperature. Yeah. I didn't even have glycol. I didn't have any cooling elements. I would literally fill up a white tote, start fermentation, and stick it outside during the night and bring it back in. And it would always run about 55 to 60 degrees for a white. That's lucky. Yeah, and we were making Alsatian-style Riesling. Um, so the environment was completely different. I would even compare it because Texas is so massive. We have to mechanize uh, in order to make a lot of this actual function. And then um, we have a labor shortage, uh, whereas they do too, but most of them has been established. And they're also part of the peach trade and everything else. These these farmers, because they really are farmers, they have both peach orchards, vineyards, they have their own plowing fields, and then they've converted to winery. For us, we have the farmers up north farming, and then we have some farmers and vintners down here and winemakers but most of us is kind of that separation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of winemakers need to have that understanding of the vineyard side. Um, I think that would ease a lot of the tension. Yeah. Do you make it out there a lot to check on fruit? Yeah, I, as much as I can. Like, uh, not as often as I'd like, I'll be honest, uh, only because we have such a small team. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, then again, that's why I've chosen my growers to be people I trust. And uh, I do try to go out at least four times a year, which honestly is not enough. Uh, you need to be out there at Verasion. You need to be out there pruning. You need to be out there at fruit set. And then you need to be out there, you know, several times right before picking mm-hmm. um, just to see and understand what you're doing. Um, but at the same time, if you know them and you trust them and they give you the proper information, um, you're going to be okay. Um, as long as you know what's going on. I really wish we could send some of this rain over to the High Plains because I know they're desperate. But can you talk <laughs> about, we're sitting here in the Hill Country on the second day in a row of like maybe an inch of rain expected and we've had um, more rain in the past two days than, you know, for months, I guess. But is this a good time of the year for these grapes to receive water and um, they're budded out? It's beautiful and green, but um, next is flowering. So when does the rain need to stop to allow for that to happen? I mean, we we got a little time. Yeah, we absolutely can rain as long as we're spraying our fungicides and kind of caring for our vineyard. Uh, Honestly, you know, the old farmer story, any rain is good rain. Uh, There's certain times you obviously don't want it. Obviously, at picking time or right before picking, you're going to want some concentration of fruit. Um, What we had in the high plains last year was not necessarily rain, but a heat wave and high winds. That's why we had such, you know, bad fruit set last year. Um, Really, the main pressure with rain is going to be mold right now. Um, Luckily, our site has a nice breeze that hits most of the time. But rain towards the end is really a bad call. Also, when you have to get in the vineyard, because we have heavy clay soil, <laughs> so you're not going to bring a truck in that or anything. So everything's going to be by foot. So I'm just going to give you the general answer. Yeah. Rain towards the end is not really what you want. But in the beginning, we'll, we'll take it, especially after that drought year. Definitely. Well, I like what you're doing quite a lot, and I'm excited for what you've got coming out. So. Sounds good. Thank you for the time. Yeah, thank you, and good luck. Thanks. Thanks, Michael. Stay tuned for Demerits and Gold Stars.
About 20 people recently completed Dr. Russ Kane's Advanced Texas Wine Specialist Certification course that was offered for the first time through the Texas Wine School. Together on Zoom, we learned a lot about the Texas AVAs. We studied soil types and weather and grape varieties, modern issues facing the industry, and more. We even blended our own wines, and most of us decided that we'd prefer to leave that to the pros. I got some great statistics and quotes, like the quote from Yano Winery's Greg Bruni that I shared at the Toast of Texas Winemakers panel. Greg Bruni said, The best wines in Texas haven't been made yet, but when they are, they'll be blends. The certification exam wasn't easy, but it was open book, and I passed. Watch for the next class by following Russ's blog, VintageTexas.com. Gold stars go to Dr. Russ Kane, our fearless instructor, and to my fellow students. And now for a demerit. I hate to give a demerit to a fellow wine podcaster, especially one with incredible longevity and a huge following, but maybe this will serve as a gentle nudge to remind the larger wine world about Texas wines yet again. In episode 471 of Wine for Normal People, titled The Best Wine Pairings with Mexican and Tex-Mex, podcast host Elizabeth Schneider doesn't mention any wines from Texas. She shares that some of the best varieties to pair with Mexican and Tex-Mex food include Albarino, Sauvignon Blanc, Rosé, Grenache, Tempranillo, Malbec, and Merlot, all varieties we grow here in Texas. When mentioning Mexican wine, she says to remember that if you find a Mexican wine, that it's likely a French variety. She says, if you want to have Mexican food and Mexican wine together, that's fine, but be aware that it's not native to Mexico. I'm not sure why that matters. She says that the best pairings, in her opinion, are Sauvignon Blanc, margaritas, and beer, things that have a citrusy zest. This was just not my favorite episode. I was glad to see some fellow Texas wine supporters comment on her social media, and maybe next time she'll keep Texas wine in mind. That's it for this episode. I'll be back in two weeks with an interview with Dan and Mara Sharp from Sharp Family Vineyards in Fort Davis. I've just returned from a trip out there, and I can't wait to share our conversation. Get in touch. You can send your feedback, questions, or ideas for future episodes. Email me at texaswinepod at gmail.com. Please consider supporting the podcast by going to the website and clicking support the podcast. That's where you can donate virtual Texas wine, which helps me defray my podcast expenses, like attending conferences. And yes, even my podcasting equipment. I sure appreciate it. You can do that at thisistexaswine.com. Finally, thanks to Texas Wine Lover website for promotional assistance. Texas Wine Lover is here to help wine lovers discover more Texas wines and also to be a resource for the wine industry. There's a complete list of all the vineyards in our state. If you're a winemaker looking for grapes, use the list to find out which vineyards are growing grapes that you're interested in. That's at TXWineLover.com. Thanks again for listening to This is Texas Wine. Cheers, y'all.